So this past week, people all over the world celebrated, obviously, uh, the birth of Jesus Christ um, during Christmas. And all over the world, um, on the night of December 24th, um, people lit candles as a way of showing that, that the light of the world has um, come into this, uh, in, into this world that he created. We did the same thing here at Tri-Valley. Um, and Justin uh, read out of the book of John, uh, chapter 8, verse 12, which says, um, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Um, and coincidentally, uh, when Jacob asked me to preach today a few uh, months ago, um, I told him I wanted to preach the whole Gospel of John, and then said, we can do that in 30 minutes, right? Uh, <laughs> and honestly, I didn't even consider that it was what day it is, December 29th, that it was after Christmas, and it was the, fir- or the last Sunday before the New Year. Um, I just was like, okay, yeah, I'll preach. Um, and I didn't have any idea that Justin would be reading out of John um, when I you know, did preach from John. And it just happened to line up that way, which was kind of cool. Um, and, and I was thinking, um, as I was listening to Justin on Christmas Eve, like, what, what better way to end the year um, and, and follow up Christmas with trying to understand this one? Okay. Trying to understand, oh, wow. Uh, who is this Jesus who has been born and who, who has come into the world and who we lit candles and, and representing the light of the world. Um, and before we get ahead of ourselves, because we are definitely going to preach the whole Gospel of John this morning um, in, in about 30 minutes. I'm watching the clock, don't worry. Um, uh, let's go to God in prayer. God, we are so thankful that you have come, you've stepped down into this, this, this world, um, and you have um, been light and... and Shown us the way in this world. God, we um, come before you this morning, and I pray that everything uh, we say and we hear and we do is all for your glory, um, and that you can lead us uh, through the Spirit. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen. Um, One of my professors at Pepperdine, Dr. Nick Zola, uh, to whom I should probably give credit for uh, inspiring this sermon, began his class. um, It was the Johanna and the Gospels. um, And he showed us four different paintings of Paul Revere's Midnight Ride. We all know it. He rides through the night and saying, like, the British are coming. He's warning the colonists. Um, and each of these paintings um, showed the same story, but they were painted by different artists who used different scenes and different mediums and different um, ideas to tell the same story. And he did this to show us that that's what the Gospels are like, right? There's four different artists, per se, using different styles and mediums and scenes to paint the same picture of the same story, um, and all of this is to say that if, if say, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are uh, Michelangelo, Donatello, and Da Vinci, uh, the artists, not the Ninja Turtles, um, then John is like Picasso. His gospel is just very, very different. It looks different. It reads differently. He has different language. He's telling the same story in a very different way. And this morning, I want to argue that John um, is trying to tell his readers, he's trying to paint this picture that Jesus is Light. He's a light that has come into a dark world and gives life to all who believe in him. Here's how we're going to do that. Here's how we're going to preach the whole Gospel of John this morning. We're going to take a look at four different stories of people whom Jesus encounters in the Gospel of John and see how their lives are changed by this light. Um, but first, let's reread uh, the prologue to John, which is uh, awesome, I think. Um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of all humankind. And the light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness cannot comprehend it. All right, so when I, when I texted Jacob, uh, or when he texted me, asked me to preach what I wanted to preach on, I said, John, um, and I said, we can do that in 30 minutes, right? Uh, he said, yeah, you should start at the beginning, though. Uh, I was like, how do we do that? He said, start at the beginning. Um, and I think in order to talk about everything I'm going to say this morning, we have to whittle away at that even further. Um, there's so much to say about this prologue. There's so much to say about the Gospel of John. But I want to hone in on one verse, which is John 1, 5. Um, I need some, you guys have your Bibles open, I hope, or memorized. It should be on your heart, right? Um, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot blink. Shout out some answers. What, what does it say in your guys' translations? Overcome it. Understand it. Comprehend it. This is good. Um, extinguish it. I like that. Uh, that's awesome. Right, yeah, so the NIV says the darkness has not overcome it. Um, the NASB in the good old King James Version says the darkness comprehended it not. We have extinguished, overcome the message. Got to throw that in there. It says the darkness couldn't put it out. And, and you might be wondering why is that? Why are there so many different ways to read the same verse? One of the first things we're taught uh, when we write in exegesis um, is to look for, pull up like five or six different translations and look for those words that are different. And, and wonder why, why are they translated differently? Why do people interpret that um, differently, right? Fortunately for us, John, in all of his Gospels, loves to use ambiguous language. Um, he likes to use words that have a wide range of meaning um, that can be interpreted very differently, including this word. Um, I think it's awesome because you can keep reading through John and the rest of the, the scriptures, and, and it'll hit you in a different way depending on how you're reading it or when you're reading it. Um, and so I think in order today uh, uh, to accomplish our goal of going through the whole Gospel of John, using this argument uh, that Jesus is light, trying to paint that picture, and honing in on this one verse, I think we need to use that same ambiguity, right? I mean, there's many different ways to, to interpret this and, and, and translate um, that word, which comes from the Greek root uh, kata lambano, and, and we're going to take a look at four different people, like I said, and see how the light shines in the darkness of their world and what that darkness cannot do. <clears throat> so the first character uh, we're going to talk about this morning is Nicodemus. He, uh, we first meet him in uh, John chapter 3, and he's a Pharisee, uh, which means he's a teacher of the law. He's a pretty intelligent guy. He should be able to um, talk about religious things and theological ideas. Um, and, and interestingly enough, he comes to Jesus in the middle of the night, playing kind of into that theme of light and darkness, right? Um, and, and the Pharisees don't really like Jesus. If you've read the rest of the Gospels, they're trying to get rid of him. They're trying to arrest him. They're trying to get him executed um, for, for a plethora of reasons. Um, so he has to come to Jesus at night or else for fear of being ostracized by, by the rest of the Pharisees. He doesn't want to be um, an outcast in their group. But he recognizes something about Jesus that the rest of the Pharisees don't. He says, we see all these signs and we, we know you have to come from God. He said, you're not just a stranger. Like, this, there's something about you that is speaking into my life that says you are from God, right? And, and, and if you read this story in John chapter 3, they have this, this conversation, this discussion, this theological discussion, right, about being born again. What, what does it take to enter into the kingdom of God? And you would expect a Pharisee, a teacher of the law, an intelligent guy, smart guy, a guy who studied this all his life, to be able to keep up with Jesus in this conversation. But again and again, he can't understand what Jesus is saying. 
What he's saying seems impossible to him. And not only that, he comes with these questions, and those questions go unanswered for him. There's this darkness in that, in that impossibility of what Jesus is saying. And when he comes to Jesus in the night and has questions, and those questions don't get answered, and he leaves back into the night. Right? Have you ever felt like that when you come to Jesus with your questions and you leave with more questions than, than you came with? That what, that what Jesus is saying to you seems impossible, that it can't happen. How can someone be born? Again, that doesn't make any sense. And he's clearly missing a metaphor that um, we might be able to read into that. But, but he leaves back into the night. But that's not the last we see of Nicodemus, right? There is a light that cannot be overcome by the darkness of impossibility and unanswered questions. There's something about this interaction with Jesus that cannot overcome that darkness. So that's the first way we're going to understand this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Like, think about it. Even if this whole room was completely pitch black, and all the windows were covered, and there's one little candle on this table, how bright would that be? The darkness of this entire room couldn't overcome that tiny little candle, that tiny interaction that Nicodemus has had with Jesus. And we see how his life is changed in light, in light of this uh, interaction. Um, later in John 7, the Pharisees are once again trying to arrest Jesus. And they send officers to arrest him. And, but there's a crowd there, and they're divided at the things Jesus is saying. Some believe him. Some want to protect him. Some others want to stone him. They want to put him to death. And these officers that are sent by the Pharisees can't reach him. So they go back empty-handed, and the, and the Pharisees are mad. They're like, why couldn't you arrest this guy? And Nicodemus is there in that scene, and in John 7, 50 and 51, he says, wait a minute, you can't, you can't just arrest Jesus without a fair trial. You can see something in his heart, something in his mind is changing, his opinion is changing about this Jesus person. He stands up to his friends, who at first he had to leave in the middle of the night, and he's now like, wait a minute, something, something about this guy is different. He might have something to offer us, he might have something to say, some truth to speak into our lives. And they kind of brush him off, and they're like, well prophet can't come from Galilee. It's a great argument, I guess. Um, but something in him has changed. The darkness of what they don't want to be true and what they can't understand and what they, they think is impossible cannot overcome the light of who Jesus is. And the last we read of Nicodemus, the last we see him in the Gospel of John, is after Jesus has been crucified. He's been crucified um, he's, he's died on the cross, he's breathed his last, and two men come to take his body down and bury it properly. One is Joseph of Arimathea, who's been a, a disciple of Christ, and he's been granted permission um, to take down Jesus' body and bury it properly. And the only other person there who's taking Jesus' body down to bury it is Nicodemus, a guy who was a Pharisee, who was scared of the other Pharisees, who, who was like, I can't come to you in the daytime for fear of being kicked out of this group, is now boldly taking down the body of Jesus from the cross. And not only that, he brings a hundred pounds of spices to bury Jesus, which essentially means he's burying him like a king, right? The old way of things will not rule over Nicodemus' life anymore because there's a light there in his life that the darkness of what he thought was impossible and the darkness of the questions that he is still asking cannot overcome. Next, we have a story in John chapter 4, right after this, about a Samaritan woman. Jesus encounters her at a well as he's passing through Samaria. Um, 
disciples go off and they want to go find something to eat. So it's just Jesus and this woman. Um, and in order to understand what's happening here, you have to understand all of the tension in this scene. Right? First of all, Jews and Samaritans don't get along. Jews would go around Samaria just so they didn't have to enter in it. There's racial and ethnic and religious tension here between these two groups of people. Right? They, they worship differently and there's a lot of tension there. And, and she's a woman. And in that time and in that culture, it would be very inappropriate for a rabbi, for a teacher, for Jesus to even talk to her in public, um, let alone talk about a theological idea, a theological or religious discussion. Um, and to add to the tension, just, just to feel it, he asked for a drink of water. And there's so much racial and ethnic tension there that, that Jews and Samaritans don't, wouldn't even have like, drank water out of the same cup. Like, they did not like each other, right? So you have to understand all this tension that's happening in this scene. But Jesus asks her for a drink of water. And they, they, they engage in this theological discussion about living water and, the, and this living water that Jesus has to offer her. Um, and we're not, we're not going to focus on that part of the story this morning. Um, but they, they talk and they're talking and they're just alone. It's just them two. Um, and then Jesus says, go, go and get your husband. Now, normally that wouldn't have been an odd request, right? That Jesus wants to talk to the head of the household about these, these, this religious topic of living water. And then he can talk to her about it later. But this woman has not had the easiest life. She's had a messy past. She says, I don't have a husband. And, and, and if you didn't feel the tension before, you have to feel it now because... Maybe if you're watching this, you would see her, her, her feet shift a little uncomfortably. Maybe she would turn her face toward the ground instead of talking face to face with Jesus because he says, you're right. You've had five husbands. You speak the truth. S some scholars suggest that this is a sign that she's a victim of, of abuse, that she's been passed around and used by man after man after man who divorce her when they no longer want her, when they no longer have use for her, when she's no longer worthy to be married to. And this has happened not once, not twice, but five times. And now the man she's with doesn't even marry her. When she responds to Jesus and when she's talking, you can probably feel and hear the pain and the embarrassment in that response. Right? Her past is filled with a darkness, with pain, with hurt, with with racial and ethnic and social rejection already. She's been used and passed around and unloved and uncared for. It's like no wonder she's there alone. Not only does no one want, probably want to be with her, but she probably doesn't want to be with anyone else. People have hurt her a lot. But the second way I want us to understand this verse is that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness Cannot put it out. Jesus is willing to meet with her in the darkness of her world and her hurt and her past and offer her respect and offer her dignity and offer her restoration and offer her hope. And, th and there's a new light in her life that cannot be put out. It's flooding into her life. It's flooding into her past and pouring back out into her world. Right? She, she runs back to her village and says, come and see the man who has told me everything I have ever done. And how weird is that? The people who have rejected her, who have hurt her, the people who have 
mistreated her her whole life are the first people she runs to and says, come and see, I found the Messiah. And you wouldn't expect the people who have mistreated her, who don't respect her, who don't listen to her, uh, uh, to, to, to be like, oh yeah, let's go follow her. You would expect them to be like, there's that, that one person again um, running around in the town, but they don't. They follow her straight back to Jesus, right? There's a light there in her life that is being poured out that cannot be put out by the pain and, and her past and the suffering she has experienced and the, and the suffering maybe that they have caused. That darkness cannot put out the light that she now has because of Jesus. She's no longer imprisoned by her past, and, and John writes that many that very day believed because of the witness of a Samaritan woman. That very day, many believed. This light that she has experienced, the light that is Jesus, has restored hope and dignity and value and identity in her life, and it will not be put out. Because the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it or put it out. <clears throat> so now, moving our way along through John, <clears throat> we jump to a story in John chapter 8, in which the Pharisees, who I mentioned before, they don't like Jesus, they're trying to arrest him, are once again trying to arrest him, right? And they, they set up this trap in order to um, pit Jesus against the social and justice systems of the day that they assume he has to succumb to. <clears throat> they drag along a woman. He, he's at the Mount of Olives, it's John chapter 8. They drag along a woman caught in adultery, throw her at his feet. One might notice that the person with whom she was committing adultery is not there, which hints that this is already an unfair trial for her and for Jesus. <clears throat> so both of them are being unjustly tried, trying to make him slip up. Um, because, because if he says, they, they bring, it to, bring her to him and say, this woman was caught in adultery. The law says to stone her. What do you say we do? And, he sa and, and if he says, yeah, go ahead and, and execute her, he would be breaking Roman law, which says that only Rome, who was occupying Jerusalem at the time, had the, um, were allowed to administer capital punishment. right? So only Rome could, could execute this woman, essentially. But if he says no, he breaks the law of Moses. Right? So he's, he's caught in this tough situation, and they're trying to trap him between these two justice systems. Systems that say when someone has done something wrong, there ought to be justice. They ought to be punished. Um, she has done something wrong, has to be corrected. Right? And, and God is a God of justice. It says all over the Old Testament, that's what he desires. You know, let justice roll down like a raging river. It's from Amos. Micah says, uh, what is good to the Lord is to do justice. Zephaniah says every morning he brings justice to light. He does not fail. So if Jesus, who claims to be God, cannot execute justice, then his claims are false. <clears throat> but what does he do? Kind of squats down, starts drawing something in the dirt with his finger. No one really knows what he's drawing. Um, there's lots of interpretations. But they keep pestering. What do, what do you say we do with this woman? You have to answer us, right? Uh, my, my friend Katai from school has a very interesting interpretation of what um, Jesus was drawing because it's already an unfair trial, right? So maybe here Jesus is trying to even out 
the playing field. Maybe if we, if we imagine this together, and we're, we're trying to view this scene as a church this morning, Jesus understands that she has been humiliated and dragged through the streets and thrown at her feet, exposing her sin for everyone to see. So maybe Jesus is writing down on the people holding the stones their name and their sin and what their punishment should be, and then goes down to the next person with the stone and writes that person's name and, and their sin and the punishment that should happen to them. Right? He's saying, you want to you you use justice to expose her sins? You want to use the justice system to humiliate her in front of a crowd and not actually to seek justice? You want to do this? You want to weaponize the law as a way to hurt people? Maybe he's saying, you want to go down that road? Start doing justice to yourself. Take a look at your own heart. What are your intentions with this? Are you trying to hurt someone or are you trying to do justice? Right, because the Old Testament does say God is a God of justice. But what does that look like? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Dispense true justice. Practice kindness. Practice compassion. Don't oppress anyone or devise evil in your hearts. Jesus is showing them that the law isn't meant to hurt people. The law isn't meant to, to, to prove points and win arguments. The law is there to show people how to live a holy life because life to God is sacred. Right? He says, you who are the first without sin, cast the first stone. Whoever among you thinks that they are so perfect, so good, that they have power to, to, to give and to take life, which is sacred, you cast the first stone. But the light shines in the darkness of these kind of situations, and that darkness cannot comprehend it. She starts to hear the rocks drop and thud and hit the ground. One by one, <clears throat> so the noises stop and the dust settles. She's left alone with Jesus. She looks around. She probably can't believe it. She can't comprehend what has just happened. She was facing certain death, and now no one else is there to kill her. Has no one condemned you, he asked her. Has no one used the law in a way to hurt you? But neither do I. And ironically, Jesus, who is the one who said, whoever is the first without sin cast the first stone, is actually the first without sin who could cast that stone, but instead of uh, condemning her, offers her compassion. He doesn't let her off the hook. He says, no, go and sin no more. But he offers her a light in the darkness of the systems of this world which might seek to weaponize justice. Where there ought to be condemnation, Jesus demonstrates compassion and says, go and sin no more. Put to death the sin in your life. Don't let it rule over you anymore. And if you put yourself in her shoes or if you put yourself in the shoes of the crowd, he could have condemned everyone there in that situation. He was the first without sin who could condemn anyone, who does have the power to give and to take life, but he doesn't. He offers us compassion and life. And it's hard to understand that. It's hard to understand how forgiven we truly are sometimes, I think. I think some of the, one of the hardest people to forgive is yourself. And here Jesus is saying, you're worth that forgiveness. You're worth that compassion and that mercy. Um, <clears throat> when I was writing this, uh, I couldn't help but think of a, of, a, of a dark and tragic situation that happened not too long ago. 
Um, when, <clears throat> and I'm not taking sides. I'm not. I don't want to get into the politics or whatever of this situation. Just speaking on the light and the darkness of this situation. When when ex Dallas police officer Amber Geiger was found guilty of murder for shooting Botham Jean in his own apartment. His younger brother, Brant, spoke out in, during this court case in, in, in the court and said, If you are truly sorry, then I forgive you, and I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. I love you as a person, and I wish you didn't have to go to jail. All I wish is that you devote your life to Christ, and then ask the judge if he could get up and give her a hug, and, and proceeded to hug her, and they embraced for about 30 seconds and shared tears over this whole situation, and that sparked such debate and controversy. How, how, how could he do that? How, what kind of forgiveness is this that he could do that? It's so powerful. It's something that is hard to understand that someone can forgive someone after that, right? There's a darkness in that situation, but there was a light there that is hard for all of us to understand sometimes, because there's a light that Jesus has offered and brought into this world that in moments like that, the darkness can't understand it. Sometimes it's too unbelievable that there can be forgiveness and that there can be compassion, that we, that we deserve that and that we're worth it in Jesus' eyes. The, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. It cannot put it out. It cannot comprehend it. <clears throat> Lastly, um, we, we've moved our way to the end of John, pretty much. We're going to talk about Thomas, right? And when I first say Thomas, who comes to mind? Probably doubting Thomas. I think that's like a phrase, like don't be a doubting Thomas. Um, but I want to rework maybe your understanding of who Thomas really is. Because before Thomas was known as doubting Thomas, Thomas, in my opinion, is known as ride or die Thomas. Um, <laughs> In John 11, Jesus is heading back down to Judea, where, where the Jews just tried to stone him. They just tried to kill him, um, and his disciples are like, hmm, maybe, Jesus, we shouldn't go back down to those people who just tried to kill you, uh, except for Thomas, who says, let us also go so that we can die with him. Like, Thomas is like, yeah, let's go. I'll die with Jesus. He's devoted his life so much so that he'll give his life for Jesus up until this point. Um, he's all in for Jesus. He has dedicated his life up to Jesus Throughout the Gospel of John, seems even more maybe steadfast, um, and it's because he believes in who Jesus says he is. He believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He believes, excuse me, that Jesus will overthrow the authorities and the powers of his day. That he's the one who's going to bring about the kingdom of God. So you better place if you're going to bet on somebody, you better bet on Jesus, right? Um, he sees that Jesus is performing these signs, and he heals people, and he speaks with an authority and with a wisdom that comes from God. And the odds are all in Jesus' favor. And then Thomas also sees that Jesus is the one who is brutally tortured and publicly executed. The one in whom he placed all his bets is now hanging on a cross, dying a humiliating death, which basically shows that no one is more powerful than Rome. That was the point of crucifixion. The person in whom Thomas has dedicated his life to has gone all in because of what Jesus has promised has now been executed. Like, like, can you imagine being that let down by something? To watch the one whom you would once die for nailed upon a cross dying. 
the one who you thought was going to establish the kingdom of God, be crushed under the kingdom of Rome, the person who promises new life, who claims to be the light that is the life of all humans, to be taken by the only promise that a fallen world has to offer to us, which is death. The only promise a fallen world can give to us is death. And now Thomas is watching this happen before his very eyes, and he says, even though all the odds were in Jesus' favor, death has still won. The light of the world, the person whom Thomas used to follow, has been put out in Thomas' life. And I know some of us have felt like that. That maybe Jesus didn't live up to the expectations that we had for him. Maybe he promised things that didn't come true for us. Right? Maybe we used to have this light. We used to follow Jesus so steadfastly and wholeheartedly. But for some reason, something in your life, something of this world has put Jesus to death in your life. But that's not the end of the story. Um, Thomas just didn't know it yet. On the third day, Jesus comes back and he's resurrected and he has these personal encounters and experiences with Mary and then Peter and the beloved disciple, right? And then he appears to the, to the disciples in the midst of their darkness and he speaks peace into the chaos that they must have been experiencing with the death of a friend and someone they used to love, right? He speaks peace in that situation, but Thomas isn't there. We don't know where he is. We just know he's not there. And they run off and they tell him, Thomas, we saw him. He, he was there. We, we, we heard him. We ate with him. And we felt him. He's real. He's back. He's alive. Everything he promised came true. We have seen the Lord, they say. But Thomas can't believe it. He needs to have his own personal encounter with the resurrected Christ. He can't. He's already betted everything on this Jesus who has been put to death. He can't do it again until he has a personal experience with Jesus again. And we give him flack sometimes for not believing, but it's just, that would be incredibly hard to do. To place all your bets on this person who has already died based on the word of your friends. Because it's hard for people who have had that light put out in their life to believe again. Right? How do you spark up that light again? How do you light that candle in the darkness? He needs that personal um, encounter with Jesus if he's going to go all in again. And a week after this, Thomas is with the other disciples this time. They're eating dinner again. Um, and he hears a familiar voice, and he hears the voice of an old friend saying, Peace be with you. He turns around, and it's Jesus, and he can't believe it. He says, Come, touch my hands and feel my side where I was pierced. Jesus knew what Thomas needed in that darkness in order to believe again. He didn't abandon him there. He came to him. He shows to Thomas in this moment that he truly is the light of the world, that the light truly does shine in the darkness, and even the darkness of death cannot defeat the light that has come into the world. The darkness of death cannot defeat Jesus. The darkness of a fallen world, and the only thing this world can offer us, cannot defeat the light that is the life of of all humankind, and Thomas cries out. He doesn't even have to touch him at this point. What he thought he needed to believe in Jesus again, Jesus offers him something else, and he cries out, my Lord and my God, a statement that one would have only said in reference to Caesar at this time, affirming that the only power and the only authority will be Jesus in his life. My Lord and my God, who is a light that even the darkness of death and even the powers and authorities and systems 
of the, uh, of the world cannot defeat my Lord and my God, who is a light that offers incomprehensible compassion and grace, even when we are deserving of condemnation for our sin. My Lord and my God, he says, who is a light that breaks down the barriers of race and ethnicity and social standing and shines into the darkness of our past and of our hurt and of our pain and replaces all of that with an inextinguishable hope. My Lord and my God, who is a light that will be there shining in the middle of the night when we ask the hard questions, even when we don't find the answers we were looking for. It's because there's a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot defeat it. That is the picture of Jesus that John is painting for us. A light that shines into the darkness of our lives and the darkness of this world. And that darkness, no matter what it is, cannot overcome it, cannot put it out, cannot comprehend it, and cannot defeat it. Today is December 29th, 2019, which means in a few days it will be January 1st, um, which often means for many people we will write and, and hopefully accomplish our New Year's resolutions. People, we, we set goals for ourselves that we want to accomplish throughout the year. Um, I myself often fail that on January 2nd, 2020. Um, but this year I want to challenge you guys and challenge myself um, that this year you ought to be a vessel, challenge yourself to be a vessel through which the light can pour into this fallen world as one of your New Year's resolutions. Be, be curious like Nicodemus and ask hard questions and be okay with not finding all the answers you were looking for. Be brave like the Samaritan woman who could face the people who have hurt her and still preach the gospel. And be like the townspeople who... who, who can listen to someone and hear the gospel from someone they would have least expected to hear it from. Accept compassion and mercy for yourself like the woman caught in adultery and try to understand the forgiveness in such a profound way that you can forgive yourself by sinning no longer. Don't let that rule over your life. Um, And be like the people around her and drop your stones. Take a look at your own heart first before trying to condemn others. And if you're going to gamble, gamble like Thomas. If you're going to bet on something, bet everything on Jesus. Go all in and proclaim him as your Lord and your God this upcoming year. Uh, Let let me pray for us. God, you have stepped down into this darkness and given us a light um, that shines into this darkness and shines out of us and shines through us. God, I pray that we can follow that light, that we can be light. and that we can proclaim you as light to everyone we meet um, this year. And I pray this in your son's name. Amen.